You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Cast, your ultimate answer to fandom, geekiness, and everything. As always, I am your host, Nathan, and we have another great episode lined up for you, where once again, I introduce you to a member of our cast, and this time, it is Stephen Pickering. Yes, Stephen, who is a local actor, as well as a panelist and friend. You've heard his voice on several episodes of the 42 Cast, and this time, I sit down with him to just talk about his career in acting, the things that he likes in fandom, just a general all-around discussion to help you get to know him. So yeah, as an interview episode, it is going to follow a different format. There won't be an outro at the end of it, uh, so I'll just go through a few things here. Of course, with the show, we always want to have feedback, and you can let us know in a bunch of different ways. One way is to email us at everything at 42cast.com. Go to our website, 42cast.com, and leave a message. Go to facebook.com slash 42cast, or you can either tweet to us or go on Instagram, at 42cast, or you can leave us reviews on Apple Podcasts. So there's a lot of different ways that you can let us know, and one of the things that I would like to know is, do you like these interview episodes? And even beyond that, do you like getting to know the cast? Do you like it when I interview celebrities? Do you prefer more topic-based subjects? Do you like it when I review TV shows and movies? So just basically, I'm always looking for feedback. I get so little of it. I know you guys are listening, though, because I see the download numbers. So I would definitely like to hear some feedback. Definitely gotten a few messages over the years. And there's a couple of people that I actually get a lot of messages from. But would definitely like to hear from more of you. So please don't hold back from getting in touch, emailing, messaging in whatever way that you can. I would definitely appreciate hearing from you. In other news, you can catch me at Chicago TARDIS this year, as you can many years. Uh, (laughs) I would say every year, but that hasn't always been true historically, but it's been pretty consistent for the last, I don't know, six, seven years. But yeah, you can catch me at Chicago TARDIS this year, so if you are local to the Chicago area, or if you can make it up that way on the weekend after Thanksgiving, would definitely like to hear from you there too. So. Yeah, if you hear my voice and you're like, hey, I listen to the 42 cast, I would love that. It's happened to me a couple of times at various cons. I'm always excited to hear from a listener, uh, so that would be really cool too. And I honestly recommend Chicago TARDIS if you're a Doctor Who fan. It's a good size con without being like a mega con. They have a lot of different opportunities for you to interact with the guests in various ways. So it still has a little bit of that personal touch that I feel like a lot of cons are going away from now. And so it's one of the reasons why I really love it. So I consider it my home con. It's very fan driven and it's very oriented towards making the fans happy. It is definitely not a corporate run con. So that's my plug for Chicago TARDIS. Would love to see you there. All right, so I didn't intend to really go on for long in this one. I'll have the normal intro outro structure in the next few episodes. 
So what we're going to do now is we're going to pause for a promo from another fine podcast, and then we will get into my interview with Steven. I love that Star Trek does what adventure programs do. It's fun characters going on adventures, wearing colorful outfits, but it tries to be more than that. It tries to say something more about humanity and tries to encourage us to be better people. I love that it gives a really positive and really hopeful view of the future. I like that you never know what you get with Trek, from Captain Pike to Picard to Captain Proton. I like the Ferengi. Earth Station Trek, a show where we talk about Star Trek, from the early days on NBC to the future on Paramount Plus and everywhere in between. And we're back. And like I mentioned at the beginning of the show, I have another one of my castmates on. And this time it is Stephen Pickering, who is a man that I know from Chicago TARDIS going back, I don't know, four or five years ago. And now we were on a panel together and we just started chatting and got along really well. And it was just like, oh, yeah, we should keep up a dialogue. And I saw him year after year. And eventually uh, he came on the 42 cast first for our uh, video panel for Dragon Con last year to talk about how dismayed he was by Howard the Duck, <laughs> the movie. <laughs> And has joined us on some panels since then that we put on the regular podcast. So, Stephen, welcome to the 42 cast. Thank you, as always, as always, a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, no, and uh, of course, you know, I'm doing these things as just a way of promoting the people who come on the show with me because I promote myself as part of the <laughs> show. And it's like, well, yeah, I mean, if people are interested in the people that come on, we should know a little bit about you, too. Sure. Well, in that case, I just won't make stuff up for... Uh... <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll keep it pretty much to the truth how about that <laughs> well your career is somewhat to uh you know or i'll just let people story. figure it out i'll let you guys right, work yeah. it out what's, what's right. true and what isn't <laughs> right exactly so yes you can leave it as an exercise for the <laughs> listeners uh, what's real and what isn't you can comment in make your guesses <laughs> right. but yeah i mean like i mentioned you are an actor mm-hmm you know, it's kind of funny with these because it's like, you know, things about people because you see them at conventions and you talk with them and chat and whatnot. And it's just like, oh, yeah, there's a lot of details about your life that I don't know. <laughs> so let's start off fairly generic here. Where are you from originally? Uh, originally? Well, let's see. I was born in Joliet, raised in northwest Indiana. So very Midwest, extremely Midwest. <laughs> yeah. So you've always been, yeah, you've always been a Midwest uh, guy. Yeah. All right. And when did the acting bug hit you? As early as I can remember. I, I'm like one of those, like, it's, it's acting is the only thing I ever re really remember wanting to do. Oh, okay. It's, it's from being a small child, it was the only thing. As soon as I realized that the people in the TV were not like little people who were in a box or that this was, and it never occurred to me that these stories I was watching were actual or real or anything. I, it always, I always had an impression that these were actors playing characters. And, and that fascinated me, especially when you see the same faces show up in different things. And it, even as a kid, that really like appealed to me as this is something I could do as an adult, 
that this is something that I could I could be other people and I can experience things from other people's point of view. That always interested me. So I, I almost kind of never wanted to be anything else. Oh, very cool. It's interesting. Sometimes you meet people that are like, they're very certain of their career <laughs> path in life. And then other people are like, I don't know. I mean, I was one of the ones that didn't know. Like, it was just like, I, I ended up just picking something because it was like, <laughs> this makes logical sense to go this way, but I could have done, you know, a dozen other things. I have so many great, really great close friends who are like that. And and I, I have a lot of actor friends who, you know, they didn't start acting until they were cast in high school or even college mm. or sometimes even beyond that. And then something hit. And I I'm, I think I'm just one of those weird ones. <laughs> Well, so I'm curious now because I'm a father. And so I'm just kind of curious, like, how did your parents react with you having such a strong desire to act from an early age? Was that something that they supported or was it kind of like, you know, maybe you should think of other career options and things? You know, yes and no. I don't know how how, how, how much how in-depth you want to get. I, I think if I get really in-depth, you might start charging me by the hour. I might have to lay on the couch, but... Cliff notes is fine. I'll try to keep I'll, tr- I'll try to keep it as light as possible. But I when I grew up, my my growing up, my household situation was not extremely stable. So my, my and none of this is like secret anymore. But but I grew up my my father was alcoholic. He recovered, thankfully. But it was made for some tense situations growing up. But not so much about the acting. But when he wasn't drinking, and I think my mom was always very supportive, worrying, but supportive. When he wasn't drinking, he was very supportive. He drove me to my college audition. My parents never tried to talk me into any, pursuing any other sort of course of study. I, you know, I studied drama in college, and they didn't really try and talk me out of that. He drove me because I, when I just got out of college and was starting to get um, booked on, you know, as just some extra work on TV shows and stuff. And he would drive me to the set. And in fact, one of the early um, TV shows that we did, he was just hanging around while we were filming. And one of the production assistants was like, do you want to be in this? And he's like, nah, I'm just here. And they're like, well, you're going to be here all day anyway. You might as well get paid for it. And he couldn't argue against that. So he, uh, so he, he got on camera and got better camera time than I did on that shoot. But there was a period where he was drinking, where he did, you know, tell me he would rather me go into business or something, which, you know, of course, as you get into survival modes, you kind of get into that anyway. But, you know, I I always kind of knew, even though he was always supportive in my face, I I, I think, you know, I always knew that this was not the path that he wanted for me. So I think that actually probably means a lot more that they did support me, even though they, you know, even though he didn't want that for me. I think that actually means a lot more that he supported me anyway. Yeah. And I mean, I think parents worry that, you know, because acting is a profession that a lot of people try to do. They'll do it for Mm -hmm. a while, but they don't get the gigs and they're not able to support themselves or whatever. And then they end up having to get into it. You know, and a lot of parents don't want, well, let, you know, (laughs) right. (laughs) Skip that step and go into whatever career you're going to end up being in anyway. They're they're all afraid, you know, you're going to wind up on the street and that, you know, can't happen. I mean, it's, it's, it's not a very stable career path for sure. But there's always there's always an avenue to do it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, even though I haven't I haven't yet been able to make a living as an actor, I've had a number of paid gigs and done some really cool stuff. So uh, and, and, you know, maybe I will be able to still in the future. I I, I have a plan. I, uh, <laughs> I'm now represented. Uh, I now have a, a talent agent. So that's that's kind of exciting. That's been the last couple of months. So. 
I have a new agent, so I'm uh, looking for, and I've got some some submissions and some auditions uh, coming up from them. So, you know, maybe maybe at some point, and that might be the right time for me. That's awesome, though. I mean, like, it's good, you know, when you're able to start achieving those goals and things that you know you're you're putting forward. So, it's just yeah, that, yeah and you yeah. you just kind of never they never go away. If you if you can lose sight of them, but if you if you always want them, they'll always kind of be there. Yeah, cool. So what what is uh, you know you said you weren't able to support you're not able to support yourself as an actor. So what uh what do you do for work besides that? Oh, for work besides that, I uh, I do data analysis for a uh, prescription benefits company. It's uh, a, a very large prescription benefits company, and I've I've worked in prescription benefits for a number of years. I think I started as kind of a survival job. I was working retail as many actors do, and somebody talked me into, hey, how would you like to work as a pharmacy technician instead of working on the, and I'm like, I looked at the, how small the pharmacy was and how big the rest of the store was. And I'm like, that's a lot smaller space. I bet I could handle that pretty well. <laughs> so I started working in a pharmacy as a pharmacy tech and never realized, but I had an aptitude for it. And so I worked there for a few years. And then my, my boss at the time, my pharma, the pharmacist, uh, pharmacy manager of the pharmacy uh, at the time said, you know, you, you can't be promoted because I don't have a pharmacy degree. Mm-hmm. He found a, a, an ad for a, a prescription benefits company said you should apply here. And oddly enough, my wife found the same ad. So they both showed it to me. So I'm like, okay, I might as well go apply there. So I, I, I gave him a resume and got hired. So, and then I've been in prescription benefits for about 30 years. Yeah, well, that's good. I mean, so you have that stability and can also pursue your passion at the same exactly. time. So that's right. Nice. Yeah. yeah. So it, the the job comes with a paycheck, which is nice, and then I can continue to act, which I, I do in a number of area plays, and more recently in some films. I'm doing an independent feature now that I've got one more day of filming on. It's called The Gray Girl. I'm very excited for this to come out. It's uh, I think I think uh. Listeners to this podcast, it's right in their style. It's kind of gothic superhero, gothic horror kind of. It's really, it is a great script. So I'm, I'm very excited. But I've got one more day of shooting to, for that. But, you know, yeah, I, I'm able to fit these things in and still work. Oh, very cool. Yeah. So you were saying that you've had this, you know, since for as long as you can remember, you've been interested. Were there ways that you were able to pursue that as you were younger or is it only as you've gotten older that you've been able to uh you know uh, act in things so one of my one of my stories is yeah my first job out of college was uh being in a john hughes film with kevin bacon and alec baldwin so but the story around that was i was just out of college and this was mid 80s because i'm that old and they were shooting or they were auditioning for a film called she's having a baby uh, which is available on DVD, but I get no residuals, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> but still, it's a it's a cute movie you should watch. Mm-hmm. But there's a in that movie there is a sequence, a lawnmower dance sequence, in and it takes place in suburbia. Um, it was John Hughes's first like film venturing out of the teenage comedy era. So there was this lawnmower dance sequence. And so there was an open audition for this lawnmower dance sequence. So I, I, I was just out of college and, you know, I was trained that, you know, you go to an audition and you let them tell, you no. And so I went, even though I was much younger than everybody else there and I learned the choreography and I auditioned. And of course I didn't get cast in that, but about a week later, they called me back and said, we'd like you to audition for the wedding party. There's a wedding scene at the beginning of the movie. 
we'd like you to audition for the wedding party. Dress nice, casual, come to this hotel, this date. Okay. So, and another one where my dad drove me into the, the audition. So we went to, I, I went to the hotel room, the ban- it's a banquet room. I, I walk in and this is, you know, if you're familiar with John Hughes films in the eighties, you know, they have a certain kind of look, right? Mm-hmm. So I walk in and there's about 200 people in the room. There are at least 50 Molly Ringwald lookalikes. Everybody else looks straight out of a John Hughes movie. <laughs> and I do not. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I dress nice casual, but I just, I don't have that look. Mm-hmm. So they, you know, they took Polaroids of us. We filled out forms. They took us in groups and then sent us away. And I thought, you know, okay, I didn't fit in with that. And then about a week later, I got a call that I was cast. So I was a groomsman in, in She's Having a Baby. And so that was a really great experience because it was sort of my first professional casting. Mm-hmm. And then the film got delayed and delayed because of weather and other circumstances. And this happens a lot in film pro- film projects that things get delayed. So I this was back in the days there weren't there was an email and you know I had to call the agency every week to say are we filming this week? And a lot of times they'd be like, no, it's been delayed. But we have this other thing. Would you like to do that? And of course I would. So mm-hmm. I would do like extra work on. There was a, a TV show in the eighties called Crime Story. It was very fun. It was set in like the 60s. So I did a couple episodes of that. Uh, I did a couple episodes of just things that were filming around Chicago. Mm-hmm. And then as you meet people, you get hear of other things going on and, and, and things. So at some point doing a number of other projects, I found out there was another agency that was casting for The Untouchables. So I submitted for that and was did a couple days as an extra in The Untouchables and then kept calling for She's having a baby. When are we going to film that? We eventually filmed it. It was closer to the fall and it was supposed to be in summer. So I remember they were spray painting the leaves green on the trees outside. It was at a church in Winnetka. (laughs) And we, so many great stories, but we were, that was, that was a part, it was sort of above, it was like a level above extras and there were a lot of extras. So we were, we were treated very, very well. We were treated like cast members. I remember a production assistant coming up like the first day and saying, you know, if there's any reason you have to leave the set for any reason at all, I'm waiting for them to say, no, you can't, you're stuck here, you're, we have you. But they say, if there's any reason at all, you let a production assistant know, they will get a teamster to drive you. And I'm just like, what? <laughs> like, this is amazing. So yeah, that was great. But we got to hang around with the cast and we were like, you know, there, and there's lots of downtime. It's lots mm-hmm. of breaks. So we filmed things. So there was a lot of times we'd sit out by the food cart because there was always a cart of snacks and things. And so we'd sit out by the food cart and Alec Baldwin would walk up and Alec Baldwin was like the nicest guy. He was really super nice. You know, and he'd just chat, he'd just chat with us, you know, and, and I think he was on a TV show at the time. I didn't really reckon this is before he was like really huge, but mm-hmm. not too long before, but really, really nice guy. I, sat down at lunch with my the rest of my wedding party. And one of them was like pointing to the side a little bit. I looked to my side because I didn't see who I was sitting. I was sitting next to Elizabeth McGovern. So <laughs> she was really, really nice. Her sister was the, played the maid of honor. So she hung around with us in the, and this was before cell phones too. So again, there's a lot of downtime. So people would bring like newspapers and I used to bring like a couple decks of cards. 
And our holding area was like, it was filmed in a church and because it was a wedding filmed in a church and our holding area was a Sunday school room in the church. So I would bring a couple decks of cards and we'd find crayons. So we would play poker for crayons. And then, so every day I'd show up on the set and Elizabeth McGovern's sister would come up and find me and say, did you bring the cards? Did you bring the cards? <laughs> she really wanted to play. She was really good at poker. <laughs> she really wanted to play. Well, I mean, it breaks the monotony of people just reading the newspaper, doing crosswords or stuff like that. Oh, yeah. You know, like, oh, that's absolutely. a lot more fun I mean, to play a card game. Yeah. Yeah. And we did all, we were playing hangman on the chalkboards and, you know, because, you, yeah, you got to occupy the time. But it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. We had a lot of fun on that set. Um, and then I got to meet the actor who was the minister. The guy's name uh, was, was Tony. Super nice guy. I had dinner with him. Like, I, it was just one one late shoot, and we were just chatting over dinner. Uh, he's telling me about you know filming war movies in the Philippines, and he had these great stories, and uh, and so you know just really enjoyed spending time with him. And then a week later, I arrived on Untouchables set. So we filmed a week after she's having a baby, filmed on Untouchables, and I'm in the the courtroom scenes. So if you're familiar with the movie The Untouchables, there's a couple of pivotal courtroom scenes, mm-hmm. and I walk into the and it was just a set that was built in a warehouse off of Roosevelt Road in like Cicero. It was a gorgeous courtroom. And I walk into the courtroom scene and I'm walking with, and that was just extra work. So I'm walking in with, you know, hundreds of other extras and I look up at the bench and there's Tony. He was playing the judge in Untouchable. And so he's up there and he waves to me <laughs> and all these other extras are like, who's this guy? We had so much fun in that because, you know, if you're familiar with Untouchables, there's a big, and I won't give away any spoilers. You should see the movie. It's a really good movie. Classic film. Yeah. But there's a, there's a big pivotal scene that happens in the courtroom and commotion happens. Nothing was nailed down in that courtroom. So we, I think we broke one of the benches we were on. I was sitting, if you see the film, I'm sitting the second courtroom scene when they come back, because they, they have courtroom scene, then they go away, then they come back. It's the second day of the courtroom. And we're all the same people. They just moved us around. Mm-hmm. So the second day, I'm sitting right behind Al Capone's bodyguards. I got great screen time on that. And there's a rail in front of us between the defense and the people watching the trial. And that rail wasn't nailed down either. We just kept pushing it forward. As we were having this commotion, we just kept moving it forward. They kept having to move it back. I think in one take, there were two guys who were strangling each other uh, <laughs> just for laughs. There was, we had so much fun on that set. I've got to go back and check out both of these movies to find you in them. I don't know. I mean, I don't know anyone, at least that I know that's, that's been in a, like a, like an actual film, not, not, you know, not, not a like indie film, you know, I know yeah, people yeah. who have been in indie films, but sure. like actual, like, you know, big films. So, I mean, that's yeah, pretty cool. that was, well, and, and untouchables, like you say, I got, I got really good screen time. Like there's a place where everybody, kind of stands up i stood up first so you can see me like pop right up uh, i'm a bit younger then but uh <laughs> but uh yeah it was that was a really good time and i did uh there was a tv movie I, I get to work with so many cool people and most everybody that you meet like who's a big name and stuff mm-hmm. they would always tell you you know don't go up and talk to them and so which i understand you know everybody's working and you want to respect privacy but they would come talk to you talk to me and they were just really really nice so I did a, a TV movie pilot of, there was a TV series called Father Dowling Mysteries with Tom Bosley and Tracy Nelson. And I was in the pilot, which they shot in Chicago. 
And so I got to meet, you know, Tom Bosley, who in between takes just, first of all, he was, I, I don't know how many people knew. I didn't know. He was like a, a manic chain smoker. Mm. I, I swear. I swear. I saw him like throw a cigarette down. And when his arm came up, another cigarette was already in it. It was, it was really, I thought he was like a magician, but super nice guy. Uh -huh. Yeah. Just really, really nice. I, I talked to Tracy Nelson for a little bit. She was really, really wonderful. And the bad guy in that TV movie was played by Leslie Nielsen oh. and he was hysterical. He had this, you know, everybody pretty much eats dinner, like in the same place, mm. sort of communal. He had this fart toy that, <laughs> that he would constantly play with <laughs> during dinner mm -hmm. and whenever there was a break or anything he would just the fart toy would come out he was cracking jokes he was hysterical you, you know you you see it like oh but he was such a serious guy and and he really did the comedy thing it's like no he was always that comedy guy i think he was just waiting for his moment <laughs> well yeah no that's that's pretty cool because yeah i mean like leslie nielsen it always uh, gave me like sort of like whiplash like seeing him in forbidden planet where he's 100% right. straight laced. And then yeah. it's like, see that everything else I know him from is like police squad slash naked gun and all the parody movies he did in the nineties and early two yeah. thousands and all that. It's like, he's a hilarious comedian. And I was surprised to see him in this like really straight role in forbidden planet. So that's kind of funny that he was like that in real life. Yeah, no, there's a, there's a Joss Whedon quote and I don't quote Joss Whedon very much, but there's one that stuck, sticks with me mm. that uh, I think it's on his commentary for the Firefly movie mm. where he says he likes to cast comedy actors in serious roles because mm. they understand timing. And I think that's right. I think, you know, this comedy just relies on timing so much, but when you're doing straight drama, timing is still important. Mm -hmm. And if you understand that, yeah, I think that's, and I think that's why Leslie Nielsen was so successful as a straight actor, as a straight dramatic actor, because he understood timing. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, you've seen, I've seen that in other things too, like Michael Keaton. When oh yeah batman you know like everybody's like michael keaton like you know sort of like a light comedy actor you know like right. what, what are you doing and it's like you know and then he was really great in that movie well i guess he was great in both movies the second yeah. movie. <laughs> i'm not sure the movie the second movie itself was great but yeah like keaton as batman such a great performance and we of course yeah. we've seen him do other serious roles since then but yeah I, i've heard that before that you can't always make a dramatic actor funny Right. But usually, you know, funny actors can be serious. Right. Because they know they know how long to time the pause. They know how to adjust the tone. And that works to your advantage, even when you're doing drama. And that's, so, yeah, Keaton didn't surprise me at all that he was that good. I, I, I was kind of blown away, too. I don't think I was quite expecting it, but it didn't quite surprise me because he understood comedy. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense when you look at it in that, that perspective, in that vein, that, yeah, okay, well, of course he would be. Yeah. Sounds like you've done quite a variety of different kinds of, you know, worked on TV, you worked on film, you worked on plays. Have you done anything like uh, voice acting or improv or any other kinds of acting? I did a, um, a few, it was a few years ago now, I did a, uh, a religious kids radio program hmm. where I played, there was one I played a, it was called Kids Corner and it was about like lizards as kids, and it was a recurring sort of bad kid lizard mm -hmm. called Teddy. 
But then I would also read like other roles as they would pop up. You know, I was a coach once. Um, I think they did a they did an episode on the the Bible story of Gideon. So I was Gideon, and I loved those doing those. One, they were also super nice people, but mm-hmm. to work with, and they recorded those. I was prepared for everybody to be sort of in a booth you know, separate in a booth because, and I've seen that before, but this particular show would record every, we would all be in one room and we'd all have our own microphones, but because we were all in one room, we could have that visual communication with each, with each other that I think reads in the voice. So I, I think it enhanced our performances quite a lot. It was also great because I didn't have to memorize anything. I would get a script like on Wednesday or Thursday I would read it a few times, be familiar with it. And I'd show up on Saturday. They would record on Saturdays. I'd show up on Saturday. We'd record it and I'd go home. And then about a week later, I got paid. And so it was very nice. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, what kind of acting do you like the best between voice acting and stage acting or TV acting, film acting? I will always, and I didn't, I wasn't always like this. When I was going to college, I thought, for sure, I would prefer film and television. Mm-hmm. But I really love the stage. The stage for me is, you know, film, television, they're great. And I like doing them. But there's a do-over chance, right? There's, you know, mm-hmm. something goes wrong. Or and I've done this, you know, she's having a baby. There was one take we did. We must have done it 30 or 40 times. And I remember just doing the take over and over and over. And and I remember looking over at John Hughes as he's directing it and he wasn't looking at the monitor and he wasn't looking at the scene and he would just, he was just getting footage. He was just getting takes. So he'd go, we'd run the scene again, run the scene again, run the scene again. And we do it. And I I just quit looking over at him and we're just again, again. And at some point I noticed that the voice changed and I looked over and it was one of the production assistants who was taking the takes because John Hughes was out in the lawn playing with Kevin Bacon's dog. So, <laughs> so he was just getting takes, but you, you had that mm-hmm. chance to kind of do a lot of them and see which one you like. And then you can re-record the, the sound and the voices to just to make sure it's perfect. And mm-hmm. that's great, but that's always going to be like that. But stage for one, it's always done in a linear fashion. Mm-hmm. There is no, like we start at the end, we start, at the, you know, go to the beginning, go to, it's always from the start to the end. And in a stage performance, as much as you try to make the performance consistent, and you really do, you try to make the show the same show for every audience, but it's never going to be exactly the same show. Something is going to be a little different. Something is going to, you're going to get a different energy. You're going to, it just the audience will give you different energy. Sometimes you'll just try something or just, you don't, you, you don't usually change things in a performance, but mm-hmm. somebody will miss a line and you have to react to it. Those sorts of things. And the beauty of stage is that it all exists just in that moment. Mm-hmm. And then it exists in our memories. It's like life, like the moments in life, they exist right now. And then they exist in our memories. And so... For me, that's what I love about stage is right now, this is, this is unfolding right now for that audience. They are experiencing it at the same time the actors are. We are all in this together and we have this moment together and we will never have this moment together again, but we'll always remember it. And that to me is, I love that and nothing will ever replace that. Yeah, I mean, I certainly don't have the breadth of experience that you have, but I did 
take drama in high school. And so Uh just the energy that you get from the audience is something that I like. And, you know, never having had the experience of performing for, you know, cameras, you know, I don't know how that would feel. But, you know, it just seems to me that like sort of that sort of immediacy, like also like, you know, you get like, you know, you get that energy, that draw of, you know, if somebody laughs or people are laughing, then you know, okay, I did something right here. And so that gives you like that immediate sort of like, all right, that's a recharge right there. And people will laugh, laugh in different places and, mm-hmm. and not always in comedies. I just recently did the play 12 Angry Men, which is not a comedy, mm-hmm. but there are, some, there are some moments where people laugh and there were different moments in different performances where people laugh mm-hmm. and that provides a little different energy. And that's, you know, and that's going to have an effect on what you see on stage too. So it's, it, it's a very communal experience. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I totally get it because, yeah, like I say, I, I've done a little bit of it. And so I know yeah. how cool that can be. Oh, it's great to get that. Yeah. So, do you have any kinds of roles that you prefer, or do you just look at whatever parts are available and just whatever's there? You know? I have a very, very small bucket list. Hmm. Like most actors I know have like a bucket list of roles and shows they'd always wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And I, mine is very, very small. And I've been able to achieve some of them, but at some point I got kind of a Zen with the shows and roles that I I get and I quit. I don't want to say quit, but I, I, for the most part, I don't audition for like, you, you show up at an audition you see your friends, you know, and you show Mm -hmm. up at an audition and you're like, and they're like, Oh, what, what role are you auditioning for? And lots of them have a particular role they're auditioning for. And I don't generally, I don't. I tell people I, I audition mostly for people or theater companies. And sometimes for the show, if it's a show I really want to do mm-hmm. very rarely for a particular role, because I've gotten this Zen where if I, I've, it occurred to me, if I look at, if I really think back to my experience doing any of these shows, any particular show, this, and I don't want to seem too metaphysical, but why not? I mean, There's always a reason why I have this role in this show. And I may not know it while we're doing it. I might not see it until after it's done. But if I look back, and sometimes I know it while I'm doing it, it'll occur to me why I'm doing this role in this show. And it might not be the role that I thought I should do, but there's a reason for it. And that reason is always a good reason. There's always a good reason. There's always a benefit. There's something that I can grow as an actor. My fellow actors can, can grow, or I'm going to have just this, I'm going to find something about this character that I never thought was going to be. And I'm just going to have this amazing experience. When I did 12 Angry Men, the, the director told us that for many of us in the cast, that he cast us in roles that most other productions wouldn't have put us in that role. But he did it for us because he thought it would be a stretch and he thought we could do it. And I really appreciated both the confidence and the challenge mm-hmm. of that. So I played juror four in that. And juror four is uh, every, all the jurors in 12 Angry Men are, are particular types of people. They're never mentioned by name, but they're all very specific types. And juror four is the type who only wants to look at the evidence. He wants to eliminate, he's eliminated all of his biases, look past all of that and only look at the evidence. Just matter of fact, what does the evidence say? And that was a really oddly, very difficult role for me to get into. 
And I had a number of people after the show say, but that, that wasn't, the character was not like you at all, but you, you really internalized it. You know, I really felt it. And give the credit to, to our director, uh, uh, Richard Dominic, who, who mm-hmm. found that, but gave us the confidence to do that because I don't know that I'd really, I don't know that I would have ever had a chance to play this juror again. And I'm so glad I did because I found so many levels in that character. Yeah, no, that's really cool. And yeah, I mean, I know from having talked with actors that, you know, nobody likes to be typecast in just one kind of thing because, you know, part of the fun of acting is stretching yourself and doing other things. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, so I get that. Um, so, you know, I mean, we're just coming out of at least how people perceive the pandemic. <laughs> You know, yeah, right please, now. can we please <laughs> so how how did that affect things for you you know because we had two years of lockdowns and yeah. people uh, needing to distance and how did that affect the theater scene badly well a lot of my friends had shows that were closed i had friends who were in shows that had their final dress rehearsal just before everything locked down and then couldn't perform and uh, sometimes couldn't perform at all. Sometimes couldn't perform. They, they, sometimes they did actually get back to doing the show a year and a half later. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's hard. One of the things that I do in addition to acting in my day job is I volunteer at our local middle school and I direct the shows over there. Hmm. And it's a, that's wonderful because it's, it's fifth through eighth graders. They're, they're just wonderful to work with. I love these kids. And we had a show, we were doing Annie and about three weeks before we opened, we went home for two weeks and never came back. Mm. And I'd been doing theater for almost 40 years at that point. And for an actor, you know, the mantra of the actor is the show must go on. Mm -hmm. I had never had a show not go on. I've seen all kinds of things. I had never had a show not go on until then. Mm. And that really, that hurt that hurt a lot. That hurt the kids that hurt me. And we still haven't been able to get back. I'm hoping this year we can get back on stage. It's, it's been a, a slow, tough climb, but I'm, I'm really eager to get back and in, in with those kids and do more theater over there, but I'm hoping this is the year, but yeah. And from an acting standpoint, again, yeah, everything kind of shut down. We found these wonderful communities through Facebook and online we would read plays just amongst friends and over Zoom. There was a group that was doing, they started with Shakespeare and then started doing other classic plays and we would do them sometimes once a week or a few times a week. We had fun. We had Henry week. So we, every night was a different Henry play from Shakespeare. <laughs> that was a lot of fun. I found a, a wonderful online community called Zooming the Movies which does, it's the same thing, but they use movie scripts and they tailor movie scripts. And that's a lot of fun because one, you get to do these characters that you've seen in films, mm-hmm. but that you would probably never play. And now you can, at least over Zoom, now you can play it. But it's also fun because many of the scripts that they use are not the final shooting script, they're earlier drafts. And so... We did uh, one of the Harry Potter films that I did with this group. Uh, one of the characters I got to play was a character that was cut out of the final film. I don't know if there was any if it was ever filmed, but it was a character mm-hmm. that did not exist in the in the actual film. And I got to create it, so that was kind of fun. 
you get to, uh, I, I played Dumbledore in one of the Harry Potter ones. And, you know, you, you get to play with like wigs and makeup and costume pieces. And a lot of it is just in props and a lot of us, you know, throw together. What do you have around the house? One of my friends was famous for every time she'd have to use a gun, she'd have a banana. And <laughs> the banana gun just always killed me. It was great. I got to do uh, There Will Be Blood, which was a great film. And I, I got to do the Daniel Day-Lewis character, which was very fun. And I had this like tricorn leather hat that I think I was using for pirates and stuff. And I kind of shaped it to look like his hat in there. And I had like a big bushy mustache. <laughs> and I, I really worked hard to get the dialect down. But, but it was cool because a friend of mine who lives now in Texas saw part of it. And he was like, hey, you were really good in that. And I'm like, oh, dude, you were watching. That was great. Because it would be live streamed over Facebook. And that was just a lot of fun. So that helped keep us sane for a while. Some of the theater companies started filming. Mm. So I got to scratch one off my tiny bucket list. And a theater company in uh, Elgin, a nearby suburb, filmed a production of Pygmalion. Mm. So I got to play Henry Higgins. In oh, Pygmalion. very cool. Yeah. That, oh, yeah. That was, that was just absolutely wonderful. What a great experience. Great cast. And I was really happy with how the film came out. But yeah, we started just you know, how can we make this work? Mm -hmm. And so we filmed, I, I did a few film projects and keeping with, you know, masks and distancing and all that until we were all getting vaccinated and things were starting to die down a little bit. And then theater started opening again. And that was nice because once it started, it was like the floodgates opened and just mm -hmm. all these companies and all these theater shows were just popping up everywhere. So now it's, it's, really come back a lot. I think everybody's still a little nervous. Mm -hmm. I've been doing one almost one project after another for about a year and a half, maybe a little longer than that. It seems like it because I know whenever I try to schedule something with you, it's like, oh, I would love to talk about that, but I'm busy doing I've got rehearsal. <laughs> right. I have a t-shirt that says I can't, I have rehearsal. And I think that's been <laughs> Yeah, uh, sorry about that. It's, it's it has been busy, but it, I mean it's a good kind of busy, but it's mm. it's been a lot. And sometimes there's been a little overlap. So I <laughs> rehearsing one show while I'm performing another. That gets a little uh, crazy too. Yeah. But yeah, it, it it's you know it, it's been a lot all at once. But um, and I forget where I was going with that. I tangent a lot, but it's been wonderful to be able to get back on stage. I think mm -hmm. that's the, the big point is to just be able to connect with audiences again and be live on stage and be with people again. Mm -hmm. it, again, there's just nothing like that. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me there was a surge once restrictions were relaxed because it's the yeah. same reason that there were the huge surges when movie theaters started opening up again and people were going to see. Well, I mean, I guess movie theaters were technically open, but nobody was running any movies. Right. And suddenly, once the big studios started running movies again, there was a huge surge for the first month or two of people just going back because it's like, oh, this is an experience I haven't been able to have for a year and a half. Yeah, it was all this pent up energy of right. now I've got to get out and do this because it never goes away. Mm -hmm. That energy is always, we were just keeping it contained and bottled and trying to find little outlets here or there where we get a, like kind of let a little steam off, but it, it's, you know, the pot's boiling. So you got to do something with it. And yeah, once it started relaxing a little bit, it was like tops come off the, the cattle now. <laughs> yeah. So is there any role that you can think of from your years playing various roles? that you sort of sort of stands out to you in your memory as like this 
this was the best experience that I've ever had. Do you have anything like that? Oh, I have so many. I don't know if I could single one out. Playing Henry Higgins was just a joy. Absolutely a joy. Playing uh, John Barrymore's Ghost in I Hate Hamlet. That was about five or so years ago. I've got a little list of roles that, yeah, I would do this role again in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are definitely two that were on there. Spider's Web, which was an Agatha Christie play. It was like the first one that I did post-pandemic mm-hmm. in front of an audience. But I would I loved that play. And I, I, the company was great. It was a great group of people. I would do 12 Angry Men again. Mm juror for any of the jurors i think you know when i came in i was just like juror anything i would just love to be in this play and it's just such an intense play that yeah i would love to do that one again i would do that one anytime yeah i don't know if that answers the question well no i mean i I, i'm just curious like yeah like what what sort of stands out you gave several but i mean like things that sort of stand out to you that you like playing and i'm familiar with pygmalion so i get the draw of doing henry higgins sure I would even do My Fair Lady. I'm not, you know, I'm not proud. I just want to play the role again. <laughs> do you have a, a musical background also to do like musical theater or are you uh, primarily just a spoken theater actor? My musical background is somewhat limited. I did not, I was not a music theater. I did, was not a music theater student. There was a music theater uh, line of study. I was not mm. in that. I was a straight drama major. I wasn't a music fraternity. I, I am a, a proud member of Find Me Alpha Symphonia. So if there's any symphonians out there, but that said, I have done a number of musicals (laughs) and musicals are something I sort of never really thought of myself doing. Mm -hmm. And yet they have been some of the best experiences I've had. I got cast about, it's been almost 10 years ago in Anything Goes playing uh, Evelyn Oakley, the English, I play a lot of English characters the English guy in there and wonderful group of people again, but it's a wonderful company to work with. Uh, Cause it was with uh, a company called Fremont street theater company in Palatine, just great, great people. But I didn't really see myself as a musical guy, but I went in and auditioned and they cast me. And so I remember there's many versions of, of anything goes that are available. And when I got cast, I didn't know which one we were doing. So I started researching all these, you know, cast recordings and what songs are, and does my character sing? Oh, he does. Oh, no. So now I can figure out what the song is. <laughs> and I don't read music. So this is going to be a challenge. So I noticed there were a couple of different options, depending on what show it was. There was a song called Let's Misbehave, which was one, which was, which was a duet. And then there was a song called uh, Gypsy and Me which had a really large range in it. The high notes on there are extremely high, much higher than Let's Misbehave. And I was like, boy, I hope we're doing Let's Misbehave because I think I could probably do that. No, we were doing Gypsy and Me. (laughs) So I had to learn that. I had a wonderful music director who really did a fantastic job getting me through that. So I remember there was one rehearsal when uh, I was working the choreography and I'm singing and, and the director stops, she's like, your hands are clenched. Why are your hands clenched? It was because I was scared to death. Because <laughs> it's, it's tough to sing on stage when you're not a singer. Mm-hmm. And, and it, that, is, that is a really, I, I make middle school students do that now. And, <laughs> but I feel their pain because I've done it. So I understand it. And it's a really scary thing to do. Mm-hmm. It's essential if you're doing a musical, but it is scary. And I totally understand it because I've lived it. 
That really is. But you know, the thing is you do some and then you start to feel like, well, now I can, I can do this. Mm -hmm. And when you work with really good people, it helps so much. It helps your confidence and it helps. That's one of the things. And I teach my middle school students this. I, I, I tell them, if you want to be good on stage, if, if you want to really look good on stage, the easiest, best thing you can do is to do everything you can to make everything around you look as good as possible. Help your castmates, help them shine, help backstage, everything you can to help everything there look as good as possible. Because then when you walk on stage, you already look great and you haven't even done anything. So I was fortunate to work with really terrific people who already made everything look great by the time I get on. So that helps a lot. And they were so supportive of me and helping me get through this. And I think they could tell I was a little scared, and, but they were so wonderful in, in helping me get through it that, yeah, after a while. So I've done, I've done a number of musicals now and I would definitely do it again. I wouldn't say it's my strong suit, but I, I can do it. Well, that's really cool. That's cool that you were able to just, without being able to read music, just be able to perform a song, you know, <laughs> for a play, you know, where there's going to be an audience. So the trick there is once you're cast, you have to do it. So. Right. <laughs> Got to figure out how to figure make it this out. work. Right. Wow. What are your interests outside of acting? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> You have hobbies? Science or fiction. Anything? I mean, obviously, you know, Doctor Who and science fiction and stuff. That's obviously. Well, that's another uh, thing that I've done is I've worked. There's a, a really good sort of, not really improv, but sketch comedy troupe and theater troupe called Mobius Theater, who's done a lot of science fiction conventions. And I've worked with them a number of times over the years. And uh, they're going to be performing at ShyCon this year. So if people are going to ShyCon, they should definitely go check out the Mobius Theater presentation. I won't be in it. But my friends will be, and you should support them and give them huge applause because this show is going to be amazing. So I've worked with them. But yeah, science fiction has been one that I really I was trying to think of like when I, I don't remember when I started getting into science fiction. I probably just turned on the television when I was small and saw that, you know, it was probably either Star Trek or Lost in Space that I saw first that kind of drew me in. And then you find you keep finding things and you keep meeting people and, and finding new things. And back then there wasn't a whole lot because that was still like 70s, 80s. So there wasn't a whole lot. I remember in, in college, one of my good friends, and it's always because of a girl, but she was, she's one of my good friends. But we made a bet with each other. I'd been watching um, I in high school. I would see Rocky Horror Picture Show a lot and participate in those casts and stuff and she hadn't seen it and they but she was a big fan of doctor who and so we made a bet with each other we made a deal with each other that she would come see rocky horror picture show and i would watch an episode of doctor who and she liked rocky horror picture show okay and it turns out i love doctor who <laughs> so <laughs> that worked out really well <laughs> yeah well that's good to share your interests yeah yeah I remember as a kid reading, even reading uh, Brave New World, which is probably still one of my favorite science fiction books. I remember as a high school student, yeah, I was in high school, and we had a group of friends watching, just watching movies, and a number of them had read 2001 A Space Odyssey, and I hadn't read the book yet, and we were watching the film. And I remember one of my friends remarking about how, well, if you haven't read the book, I, you know, the, the opening sequence, if you haven't read the book, I, you probably have no idea what's going on. And I'm like, well, I could probably imagine what's going on. So I, I kind of looked at it as an exercise and I put together in my head what I thought was going on. And then when I read the book later, I, it wasn't too far off. 
That is pretty good because, yeah, I've read the book and seen the movie. Although I did it the other way around. I read the book and then saw the movie. But yeah, I was watching it going, wow, if you haven't read the book, what do you think is happening in this movie? Because there's a lot of strange stuff. There's a lot of strange things in there. And definitely, I think the book helps more toward the end of the film. Because when it gets really weird. But I'm one of those, I'm a weird one like that. Like if there's a book and a movie and I would like to experience both, but if I know there's going to be a movie or a TV show, I want to watch the movie first and then read the book. I want to see the second thing first and then see what the first thing was. Because if I, when I've done it the other way, if I read the book and then I watch the movie, I generally nitpick the movie. I'm the same way, actually. (laughs) I'll tell you the time that it most affected me was I read Jurassic Park the year before the movie came out. Mm-hmm. And everyone else, at least of my generation, who saw Jurassic Park came out of that movie like, this is the greatest movie that I ever saw. Like, this is like yeah. spectacular, <laughs> wonderful. And I was there going, how did they leave out this scene? Why did they change these characters' personality? You know, like the whole thing, I was just like disappointed with it. You know? Exactly. It's like, it, like the, the story isn't as good the way that they did it. Yeah. The, the 2001 sequel, 2010, the whole movie, I'm like, what about China? <laughs> China's not even in this. They were pivotal. In a way. And of course it makes sense. Uh, but when, when I see the second thing first, when I see the adaptation and then I go back to the source material, I can better appreciate the process they must have taken to sort of mm-hmm. crystallize the story because film is a different medium. And so you have to tell a story in a different way. And I understand that, but it always kind of irritates me a little bit. I'm like, you're missing, but, but, but you're missing. It always, it sets up an expectation that I don't seem to have when I go in reverse. Yeah, I I completely understand you on that one, because I had the same issue. Hunger Games is an example of one that I saw the movie and then found out there was a book. I didn't know about it beforehand. And then I read the book and I enjoy both. Right. And that's usually how it happens. I'll I'll usually enjoy both for what they are. I like that a lot with Target novelizations for Doctor Who episodes, Mm. because they are the Target novelizations are usually quite different. And because I've usually seen the episode before I've read the book, mm-hmm. I'm reading the book and I'm going, okay, I appreciate usually the the extra context or the depth or where they're going with this and understand why they couldn't do that, even though the, the book usually does come second. So I'm maybe a book. Oh, right. Yeah. The Tartanizations are a strange case. <laughs> yeah. But there's a, there's a weird disconnect in my head or something mm-hmm. where I can still appreciate both for what they're doing. Because I, I tend to appreciate the context. I think maybe they, maybe it's just I have to see the video and then the book, and I don't care what order they came out in. Yeah, so for people listening who don't know or, or become fans of Doctor Who in, in later years, the target novelizations were the original series of Doctor Who uh, that ran through 89. They're kind of making a comeback, and that's a whole mm-hmm. thing I'm not going to get into. But they eventually realized, well, Doctor Who has this huge following amongst children. So why don't we novelize the stories and make it so that they're books that will encourage reading? among children yeah. and and you know they're short they're usually about 120 to 150 pages so it's not like a big novel it's you know fairly short a lot of times they'd have to condense the story to fit within that sort of page count but sometimes they add interesting things to the story especially when the writer who wrote the story is also the one who writes the novel yeah. because other times if the writer who wrote the story they'd always offer it to them first if they had either didn't want to do it or had passed by the time they, they got around to wanting to do the novelization, they would commission someone else to do it. A lot of times that was a man named Terrence Dix. 
Yeah. Um, and, and those cases, they tended to hew a little more, I think, to what was on screen. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they're, they're interesting. I read a lot of them when I was a kid. I've read a lot of them later in life. Yeah. I still don't have all of them. I, Stephen can see my bookshelf right, yeah, yeah. right there. Impressive. And that's it's where impressive. I actually have. Don't let, him, don't let him fool you. That's impressive. <laughs> I have a bunch of them, but I don't have quite all of them. Uh, I don't but have, all of them but I've been reading them over 30 something years of my life. So, I mean, yeah. It's like... Well, and I'm that old where when I started reading Target novelizations, there wasn't DVDs and there, you mm-hmm. know, we didn't have, if we watched what was on broadcast on PBS at that time, mm-hmm. and otherwise we didn't watch it. And so for a lot of the episodes, especially pre Tom Baker episodes that they just weren't showing in the U S for so whatever reason Mm -hmm. for those episodes, the only way we could experience them is through target novelizations. Yeah, actually that that's funny that you mentioned that because I've been reading them since the eighties. So also before they started releasing video in America. Yeah. But, and the primary reason that I started reading them was because when my local PBS went through the Hart and Alan Troughton stories, I realized that there had to be that there were gaps Right. You know, I later found out, oh, there are missing stories and whatnot. And those were the ones that I originally, we had this really cool uh, bookstore in Florida where I lived, or I, not bookstore, collectibles store that had a huge area for just the Target nods. And they had most of the ones that were in print. And so I'd grab the ones for the stories that had been skipped, you know, and that was the, initially why I was reading them was just to, I want, you know, to know that story. Right. And as time went on, I just started reading, you know, whatever was available or if I'd be in a different bookstore and, you know, they would have one and as oh, I don't have that one. I'll buy that one, you know, like that kind of thing. Yeah. I, I, one of my first Doctor Who convention that I went to was in the 80s. It was uh, the TARDIS 21 convention in Chicago. And I went to a panel with John Nathan Turner and Lala Ward, which was a really interesting panel because people kept asking Lala Ward who her favorite Doctor Who monster was. And she kept saying, Tom, but, <laughs> but <laughs> she was, she was wonderful. She's absolutely mm-hmm. wonderful. But I asked, I, I remember asking John Nathan Turner at that time, what happened to chameleon? And, and his response was, Oh, you haven't seen, you haven't seen planet of fire yet. And I hadn't because I didn't, it hadn't hit any of the TV show, any of the TV stations. So I didn't realize they'd come back to it. So immediately, what do I do as, as a fan in the 80s is I go to the dealer's room and I look for the novelization and I could only find the hardback novelization, but I bought it and I read it on the way back to college because I had to know. That's how we would experience the episodes we hadn't seen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, that's uh, a, a different time. Now yeah, everything's yeah, available instantaneously. Kids today, they'll never know. They'll right. never know. They've got, it, they've got it all handed in front of them. They can just flip back. Yeah. I mean, the crazy thing for me was learning that even though the, you know, a bunch of the early 60s stories were missing is that there were fans back in the 60s that were recording these things on, you know, audio tapes. Yeah. So like we have the soundtrack for every single story. We have the audio for everything. That's amazing to me. And so that's an interesting experience is listening to them without the visuals and just sort of letting your imagination go along with it. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting sort of audio books that were put together from some of those that are uh, BBC did a lot of those. And a lot of those are available on like things like Audible and stuff where you can listen to them and with the narration and stuff. And that's that's really interesting. There are a lot of telesnap recreations and fan recreations that use the audio. So you can kind of experience those. So it's it's nice that you can at least get some sort of, in- and note with the, anima- the animated episodes, are, it, we're getting... It, it's branching even more, mm-hmm. but it's wonderful to be able to see some of those things. 
it's interesting to see science fiction now because I talk about Doctor Who a lot, but one of the things that fascinates me about because I'm also a Star Trek fan, mm-hmm. and, I, and I, I, I've watched I've watched all of the Star Trek shows, and I, everybody has their favorites. And I, the thing that really amazes me, it kind of amazes me, is how much with both the films and the current TV shows, how much they want to go back to into or before the original series. Yes. I was just having this thought. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Because, and I keep thinking about that. Like it's interesting. And I think they generally try to come up with really interesting stories and takes, and I, you know, I can go on and on about whether or not that's a good idea. And I have, I have my opinions. Well, do tell. Oh, well, okay. So one of my things, like, I'm not a huge fan of the JJ Abrams films. Mm -hmm. Okay. And not always for all the reasons that some of the reasons that people generally cite, but I, I just think for the most part, it's not, I, I, when they announced that they were doing, they were recasting it. And I was like, this isn't fair to these actors because they're stepping into very iconic roles and mm-hmm. very iconic performances. And you're not giving these actors a chance to really create something for themselves because they really have no avenue to do that. If they do that, then they're not being true to the character. And if they don't do that and they stay in it, then they're not really creating anything. They're sort of imitating or parodying. And I just thought it's, it's, it's a really fine line to walk. And sometimes, sometimes I think it's almost too fine and it's a really hard place to put an actor into. So I, I would really rather, like, especially for the films, I would really rather they create a new ship and new characters and just tell new stories. Mm-hmm. Rather than, you know, especially if you're going to rehash the stories we've already seen in addition to the characters. (laughs) Yeah. It's been done in better. I've got to say, of the three movies that they did with that cast, I like the third one the best, which is the one that J.J. Abrams did not direct. Right. It's the most original. Right. It's the most (laughs) original. And also, I feel like it was clear that Abrams would rather be doing Star Wars in the two that he did. Absolutely. Because it didn't have... You know, I mean, there's so many debates nowadays between like, you know, people are like, well, you know, you're just a hater or whatever. But I, I still believe that a franchise has a particular feeling and I, and, and you can't mm-hmm. always define what that is very well as far as what differentiates it. But it's more than just a name. Yes, oh, right. legally, Paramount has the right to slap the name Star Trek on anything they want to. But there's still something about Star Trek. I mean, the thing I always say, Star Trek is the more cerebral sci-fi series, right? It's the series that's about something philosophical or it's about something that's that's true to science. And And again, I mean, the movies, even the ones that had the original cast, tended to go to just the action adventure kind of thing, but they still, because they were grounded by casts that had been in a show that went that way, it it felt a little more true. But when you're taking a completely new cast and putting them in there, and it's just like, this is just a space adventure. It's like, well, this doesn't feel like Star Trek to me. Whereas the third movie was actually about something. It was actually about the idea of the other. And when you hate the other, you start, and then you become the thing Mm -hmm. that you hated it was this sort of like really beautiful sort of thing and you didn't see it coming. It was one of those things, right. but when it hits at the end and you realize that, oh, that's that's what that's this what was all saying. about. That's the what they've been saying, yes. And right. I, I do like that. And I love me some Star Wars. But mm-hmm. I and I also say that Star Trek, Star Trek is has heart mm-hmm. and it has a soul to it. You know, these are I love me some Star Wars, but 
these are not the most complex characters in these Star Wars films. And, it's, and by design, I'm not, well, I'm not slamming them. I'm, right, but I'm not slamming yeah. them because that's designed to be, it was designed to be an homage to the old movie serials mm -hmm. and it works very well at that. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff and they've, they've done a great job with exploring some of the characters in some of the TV shows and find some levels to go to. But at the onset, these are types and they're, they're having a, a great space adventure and that's what it's supposed to play at. And we're supposed to enjoy it. And I do. But Star Trek is not that. Star Trek has philosophy and heart and characters. There's a connection of those characters. They care about each other. I, you know, as far as a complex character, I'll put Spock up against any Star Wars character. Mm -hmm. Spock is, uh, but any of those Star Trek, uh, I, my favorite Star Trek is Deep Space Nine. So, yeah. and, and one of the things I love about Deep Space Nine is that all of the characters, even the most, supporting almost one shot character in deep space nine was complex enough to be at least a recurring, if not a regular character on any other show, they were so well-defined and so well-performed, but Star Trek does that to not always as successfully as others, but that's always their goal. They want to create people who are connecting in order to tell these stories. And that's the heart of Star Trek. And that's what Abrams didn't capture. I will say that I, I do feel like the TV shows that are on now are at least they recognize that and, and are trying to get to that sometimes, again, not always as successfully as others, but I think that's really where they're trying to go. The thing I just don't understand is why you'd want to go back. There's, there is the, the technology thing, right? The technology yeah. you have now predates the original series, which is shot in the 60s. And the, the stuff you have now is always going to look better than the stuff in the 60s. And there is something to be said for science fiction is always really about now. I'm not sure. I don't know if you're familiar with Star Trek New Voyages or Star Trek Continues, which are I've heard of projects. that. I haven't seen it yet, but I have. I, I would it. highly recommend Continues. Not to get too deep into it, New Voyages was done over a much greater span of time. Like they started in like, I think either 99 or 2000 mm -hmm. and their episodes were very much, they were, they were a lot rougher in the early ones. <laughs> Let's put it yeah. that way. And they never felt like, I don't know. It never felt like it was really going anywhere. It's just a bunch of just like whenever they had the time, they would drop an episode. It continues was actually done. I believe it's 13 episodes, but however many it is, they did it all as a block with the stink. Like they did four, then they did another four. And then they, but they, they had a plan basically the whole way. It's supposed to bridge yeah. the gap between the end of the original series and the motion picture. But the thing about them is even though, again, it's, it's other actors playing the roles and you get some nice things like James Doohan's son plays Scotty nice. in Star Trek continues. So you have that sort of touchstone to the original series, but the sort of love for the original series is there because all the costumes all the sets are faithfully recreated mm -hmm. i've actually toured the sets of new voyages Ooh. because uh, i was visiting my mother in massachusetts and i was like let's drive so we can actually drive through upstate new york we kind of detoured a little bit to go through upstate new york which isn't quite a straight line from milwaukee but we went there so that i could because they've turned it into a museum because CBS basically doesn't want people making fan productions anymore that are so nice. Right. And so they've sort of clamped down on that. But they said, hey, we already have these sets built. Can we charge admission and pay you? Okay, you know, so they're an officially licensed Paramount Museum That's of Star nice. Trek. I appreciate that. Yeah. But they've, they've recreated like every room that existed on the Enterprise they have there. That's amazing. 
And it, it looks just like the original series. It looks perfect. And they said a lot of it they got from talking with people who did it in DS9 when they recreated the Enterprise for DS9 to like help them with details and things that they didn't have. But it was very cool doing that. But that's the thing that I got to say, as somebody who grew up with the original, I remember before there was Next Generation. I was small, but I remember that. Yeah. I watched Star Trek every weekday afternoon because it was on TV. Sure. And that sort of faithfulness to it is important to me. And that's the thing that frustrates me about a lot of the, the newer stuff that wants to go back. Because Picard, I can put in a separate bucket because Picard is saying this is the story of Jean-Luc Picard years after we saw him in Next Generation. So that's fine. You can do whatever you want. Right. But when you're going back and you're saying like, oh, by the way, here's Uhura and Nurse Chapel and you know, all yeah. these people yeah. from the original series. It's like, I want to feel like these are the same characters and I want the ship to look pretty much the same as it did. And it's like, it's not. I was going to say that that museum probably is more authentic than Strange New Worlds. But... Right, exactly. It's the Space Hilton. And that was before that, because that's always my joke about the Enterprise D is that it was the Space Hilton. Yeah. Well, now they made the original Enterprise the Space Hilton. And I was like, before that, like, kind of made sense as a progression. Space was more at a premium as technology was more primitive. So everything had to be more efficient and everything was tighter and smaller. And then once, you know, you get a hundred years later, you got the Enterprise D. Now we can have these huge lavish areas inside the ship and everything's really plush and everything is you can spend more on luxuries. You know, you can have more luxuries on this ship because the, the act of moving the ship and all of that isn't as difficult as it was. But now it's like they don't even care about the idea of technological progression or anything <laughs> like that. It's just sort of like, oh, no, this is just as fancy and nice as the stuff that you're seeing in Picard. And it's like, but there's 100 years separating that. Exactly. And, and at some point you kind of get it, but it, it's, it's a, it is a little frustrating because, you know, yeah, you, you do have and audiences are going to expect it to look more modern. And, you know, mm -hmm. I get that. And they're trying to bridge the gap between try and get a little of each and you know not go too far out but they can't make it just look like it's in the 60s because then it would just look cheap and shoddy mm -hmm. so i understand all that but and beyond that too like i i don't get why to me if you're going to go back like you're going to do strange new worlds and i i i did enjoy that i've enjoyed it so far mm -hmm. overall i've really enjoyed it. i think the cast is really good yeah and i should say also although i'm doing this like I appreciate a lot of what they're doing. I just yeah. feel like a lot of these things can be like discovery is another example of something that I feel like if you had set discovery 30 years after next generation, a lot of the problems with discovery would have gone away. Now they wouldn't have been able to do the spot connection and some of the stuff they did with in discovery, right. but they could have basically done the same plot. Yeah. <laughs> just well, I, I feel like, I feel like they kind of did that with discovery. Like they, they got to a point where it was like, it is the thing is like when you go back in, in time and tell you've put yourself in a box, Mm -hmm. And you've got these constraints, right? Like, you know, strange new worlds, even if you're right into it, you know where that ends. That ends at the cage. Right. Right. You're constrained because there's only so far you can take some of these characters because of what you've seen before or how they've been talked about. And so it kind of binds you a little bit. I felt like Discovery kind of, they started with that. They were maybe feeling that frustration and figured out a way to get out of that. But now they've kind of gone back into strange new worlds and, and done that again. I like the actress playing Uhura. Mm -hmm. I couldn't tell you why Uhura is on that ship right now. <laughs> but I, I like the, I'm, it's a good, but I don't know why she's there other than she was on the original show. I don't know why Chapel's there, except that she was on the original series. Yeah, the one the one that I liked was Dr. Mbenga, Mbenga because yeah. like he's barely in the original. So it's like, you have a pretty 
big, you know, like canvas there that you can paint into because there isn't really much of an established character for that. So that one, I was kind of like, oh, that's kind of neat using that guy who's barely in the original. That series. is kind of neat. At the same time, they've got to do something with him because there's another doctor in the cage and we've got to get that guy in there. Right. Says so that's part of the constraint is you, you can't go too far off the off the road. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm not a huge a huge stickler on, on canon and continuity and stuff. I think that's great. Those are great fan discussions and people should have those. I, I, I love participating. I love that fans really care about them and they talk about them. I don't like so much of the gatekeeping that's done around it, but I do like that fans are engaged and paying attention, but you do have certain continuity milestones that you have to hit or you've just upset your fans. Right. Right. And so it, it is, it does kind of bind you. We know there's another doctor who has to come in at some point. We don't know when yet. I don't know who's going to play him, but we know he's an older guy. He's, you know, because uh, we, we've kind of seen that. So some of that is like, again, there's only so far. I don't know why you would want to go back and do that. I, I, unless you were doing like a limited series or something, maybe I could see that. But for an ongoing series, take that in the future or in the same time period as, Next Generation or Deep Space Nine or Voyager, but a different ship and a different crew. So you have some place to go. Yeah, no, I I agree with you on that. I think part of the problem has been that a lot of these franchises want to do what Marvel did so well. And even when they're not in the same, you know, like Star Trek is not in the same genre, really. I mean, other than the sort of sci-fi, you know, Marvel's sort of Mm sci-fi. But it's like everybody sees this mega franchise that has done this really great thing, but they're not putting the work into it that Marvel yeah. did of actually thinking things through of what is the progression that we want to do. And yeah, we're adapting material, but how can we be faithful to that material and yet also tell a story where things are going to happen with characters that don't exist, you know, that didn't ex- that were in the comics, but don't exist yet with us. But we, so we have to change the details around and things. And Marvel has overall been successful. A lot of people are griping now, but I think this is going to be a blip yeah. overall as far as like the Marvel progression. But Paramount wants to have just as many Star Trek products as there are Marvel products. And we've seen it with DC and Warner Brothers and all these mm-hmm. other guys who want to have it without putting the work in of really plotting it out. And I really, I mean, Strange New Worlds was just because Pike showed up on Discovery. Right. Everybody loved Pike. And he did. And that's a great example of somebody who, with very little, I feel like Anson Mount has come in, looked at what Jeffrey Hunter, I believe was yeah. the name of the original yeah. actor who played Pike, looked at what he did and tried to be true to sort of a performance there while mm-hmm. also realizing, well, he only did one episode. And so I've got to sort of flesh out this guy. Right. Beyond that. I've got some place to go with this. And, and, yeah. and so that that works for me. I see Anson Mount playing Captain Pike and I was like, yeah, I mean, I, I get that. Whereas mm-hmm. I look at Rebecca Romaine playing number one, and I'm like, D- D- I don't think she even watched <laughs> the cage. Because yeah. I'm like, this is a completely different character. You right. have not taken anything from Majel Barrett's performance yeah. into what you're doing. And I would say largely with Chapel as well. Same thing. The same actress. The whole first episode, I'm like, well, number one and Chapel have to talk to each other because they were both played by Major Barrett. So. <laughs> so, so that has to happen. But 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 that's the thing when you're a fan of the original and there are new actors playing it, that's fine. But to me, it feels like you know, it's, it's the same with Big Finish when they're doing recasts. Mm-hmm. I I feel very differently about the actors like Tim Trelore and Elliot Chapman, who I feel like did the work 
and have really done what they could do to bring the performance of the original actors right. to embody that character than I do about some of the other actors that have come in where it's kind of clear that it's just like you're just you're just you came in cold right yeah <laughs> you know like you didn't you didn't do anything to like research or try to do anything like the original yeah and and, and, and some of that bridges on my problem with or my my frustration with the jj abrams with the casting with these it's not fair to these actors and, and to some degree it's not there's only so far you can make this original you have there's a fine line to make this you know to capture that original actor without impersonating them mm-hmm. and you can't go too far one way or another and it's a really hard thing to do and sometimes not fair because the actor can't be creative on their own they can't create new paths usually can't create new paths too much on their own you have real success Anson Mount is a huge success in Strange New Worlds he's done a great job with Pike I still argue that I I, I like Ethan Peck but I still nobody has ever done Leonard. No, nobody has ever done Spock as well as Leonard Nimoy and probably never will. It's difficult to articulate, but Nimoy had a connection to Spock that I just don't feel with other performances in that role. And it's, it's a tough, tough character to do, but, and that's why I'd almost rather see, see more new characters because then you could play. Cause I think Ethan Peck could really do an interesting Vulcan. And I think he does a, a decent job as Spock, mm-hmm. but he doesn't capture Letter Demoy for me. And yeah. should he? So you're always like wrestling with your expectation as an audience member versus you want the actor to create as well and, and to be connected to that. Yeah, I've talked with some of the big Finnish people about this before, about like, you know, no other role gets this right. Like, you know, how many yeah. people have played Hamlet, you know, right. through, you know, since Shakespeare's time, like how many people and nobody says go oh, well this one guy who played hamlet that's it like you've yeah, all you weren't act- olivier though <laughs> <laughs> but then now because we have these characters that have always been that way for x number of years 30 or 40 years people are like well that's that's the performance that is the definitive version and so that has to be brought back and i understand the frustration from an actor's point of view oh because sure it's like hey i would like to bring something to this character i would like to break out yeah but you can't. But the fan in me is like, I like the idea of continuing the characters, you know, because there's some people who are against recasts of the right. major characters in Doctor Who or Star Trek or whatever. I like recasting. But like I say, I gravitate a lot more to those who try really hard to emulate. And, and then there's a there's a skill to that. There's a work to that oh, also. Yeah. So I mean, from an acting standpoint, as far as embodying another performance that's not necessarily the way that you would do it also and so i mean i think probably different actors that suits them better than others yeah no and it's 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 an interesting challenge but true as a fan you know because you're thinking of these characters as the same characters Mm -hmm. when nurse chapel is is so different now than she was that seems jarring even though i like the actress just mostly bush is playing it now i like what she's doing it's just it's not chapel and i and my brain is trying to connect those two pieces and it it gets very difficult and so and and i feel for these actors because you know it is a wonderful challenge and i'm like you know that must be really exciting to to really try and grab that and at some point and 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 the the other voice in my head is going you poor poor bastard (laughs) (laughs) you are being judged right now i feel for you so hard (laughs) i'm so sorry you have to go through this but (laughs) 
and I get it too. I think we're in a weird place with entertainment right now where everybody's, there's always been a level of everybody's trying to make the thing that was a hit last year, mm-hmm. but it's, it's almost gotten worse where everybody's trying to make the thing we've already seen. And mm-hmm. here's another repackaging of the thing we've already seen. And here's the thing that people, it works over there. So let's, let's do that because people like it because it's over there. And I, I, I get these things are expensive and you want to make your money back and stuff, but Marvel studios took a huge risk with the stuff that they did. And you could say, yeah, they started kind of conservatively making comic book movies, but they really kind of invented the comic book movie format in a successful way. There hadn't been anything close to as coherent or successful a superhero film until Iron Man. Right. They nailed it right there. But then they kept in that for a little while, but then they've gotten very confident and they've had the latitude and the courage to make a lot of different styles of films Mm -hmm. with these comic book characters and the audience for the most part, they don't all hit and they hit different people in different ways. And some have ones they like and ones they don't. And that's great because there's so many of them now. You didn't like that one. There's try one of these 25 other ones. You're good. (laughs) (laughs) But that's, that's the place you want to be, but it's because they took those risks. Mm -hmm. This all could have blown up in their face, but they took these risks and now they're reaping the rewards. And you're right. Everybody else is going, oh, well, I want to do that, too. You know, DC's going, yeah, I want to make my uh, my Avengers movies, too. It's like, well, you haven't taken the risk. You haven't found your voice yet. And that's the thing is like each one of these Star Trek has a voice. Star Wars has a voice. These franchises are not franchises because somebody throws money at them and makes a movie every once in a while. They're not going to make these movies unless they were making money. Right. Mm -hmm. So they have a voice. They have something they want to say. There's they reach an audience in a certain way. Doctor Who has a voice Mm -hmm. and they're all distinct from each other. Marvel found its voice. DC has got to find its voice. All these other franchises that want to be franchises have to find their voice. You know, James Bond had a voice. It's had a voice for a long time, but it's got a very, dis- there's a real pattern to it. I, I feel bad for people working in a James Bond movie because it's probably a lot of fun, but mm-hmm. it's probably also about as rote as movie making can get. <laughs> but that's also, that's what the audience wants. And if you don't, don't give them that, then the audience is not going to be satisfied. So the secret is, to give them that, but make it as good as possible mm-hmm. to really enjoy it. And if you do that, then it'll read, then you'll, you'll make, you'll both make a really good, cause there've been some very good James Bond films mm-hmm. and you'll make a good film and the audience will enjoy it. And that's the thing that's really the trick. And you're right without doing the work and without taking the chances, you don't just get to ride up on that platform. Yeah. I think that's a lot of why the Star Trek stuff keeps going back to that original crew. Cause I think that they feel like that's safe. Yeah. Like we have a built in people are already interested in Kirk and Spock. Right. And these characters they're already interested in the Enterprise. So let's keep doing shows or movies that focus on that because the name recognition and everything else whereas if we say Star Trek Excelsior and this is the ship Excelsior and this is a completely different crew and nobody's right. anybody that anybody knows and there's no references to anything other than the Federation that anyone knows anything about like that it's like whoa you know yeah. Yeah, who's <laughs> gonna might... come see this uh, right you know exactly. but uh, honestly i would and right. i think a lot of people would because you know i i, I kind of lament in the atmosphere we are now i feel like something like star trek next generation would never get made no i agree and that would be a shame because that was a really good television show and it created some really indelible characters that went on to films not all of them great but still we wouldn't have Picard now if there wasn't Next Generation. We wouldn't have Next Generation if we were trying to consi- constantly remake the original series. 
Yeah, I mean, because even the Section 31 show that they're proposing yeah. is going to be another show that also takes place in the original series time. You know, Michelle Yao mm-hmm. is going to go back in time from Discovery where she already entered the the, the portal and she's going to arrive back. Then. Right. <laughs> so it's like, well, geez, you know, like I love Michelle, but don't get me wrong. Michelle Yao and oh, yeah. her performance as Empress Giorgio has yeah. been phenomenal and I love her. I mean, I love her in general anyway. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But again, it's going to be more in that time period where it's just like, man, like there's no there's no real good surprises in this time period. Right. And I love the idea of a Section 31 TV show. I just I think that would be a wonderful show. But yeah, why not put that in? If you're going to even go back, put that in Next Generation Deep Space Nine Voyager time. You've got some avenues there to go because we haven't really seen too much beyond that, except for way distant in the future. So you've got some place to go. Yep, I completely agree with you. Well, Stephen, we've talked longer than I. Oh my gosh! Planned, okay, and I really enjoyed. I really enjoyed this. Oh yeah. I feel like we could talk about this kind of stuff for quite a while because you've already given me several other hooks where I'm like, man, I'd love to talk about. You know, you brought up James Bond, and it's like yeah. I'd really love to know what you think about the latest Bond movie and everything like that because that's another franchise that I grew up with, and you know, I was really yeah. near and dear to my heart, and I have some. Opinions that are controversial from the fandom that I'm kind of interested in. Oh, I do too. So uh, yeah, we should definitely do this. (laughs) Okay, just really quick, really quick. What do you think of Timothy Dalton as Bond? I like Timothy Dalton. I don't think he got a good, a really good film. Yes, yes, that's, that's it. That that is it right there because but everybody I like his rags. I everybody rags on Dalton, and I'm like, no, Dalton was an amazing Bond. I mean, oh, I, he was I a very him. solid, gritty. I liked where they yeah. the, the idea where they were going to take him. I'm just give the guy a script, right? He <laughs> <laughs> yeah. only had two movies, and he was gone. I mean, you know, give the guy a good script. Yeah, yeah, no, I I think he was done wrong. But yeah. anyway, yeah, I just I'm curious because that's the one where it's like I usually butt heads with people about Timothy Dalton <laughs> because uh, I think that he was great, and I do wonder about the parallel world somewhere where he got to be the seventh Doctor because he auditioned for it. <laughs> yeah, and it would have been interesting to see his take on playing the Doctor because that would have been very different from what we got with Sylvester McCoy. Yeah, I wonder if he can play spoons. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so Stephen, thank you for coming on the show. And Thanks for having me. I hope that going long doesn't like uh, taken anything away from your evening. Yeah, I, no, no, I just I feel bad for you. Good luck editing. Right. And for the listeners, I've had a great time. I, I hope you guys listening or have enjoyed this because <laughs> I've had a great time. Because <laughs> it was like we we got to talk about genre stuff, and then I was just like, oh, but there's so much to talk about. Here. Oh yeah. <laughs> <And it's> just... <laughs> All right, but yeah, so Stephen, uh, again, yeah, thank you so much for being on the show, and hopefully we'll have you on soon. Yeah, thank you again for having me, and look forward to another episode. Thank you. You have been listening to the 42Cast, copyright 2023. Got a question for the ultimate answer? Contact us at everything at 42Cast.com. Theme music is Sharper Swords by Brandon Ellis. Check out more of his work at www.cityfires.com. The 42 Cast is a proud member of the ESO Network. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. 
Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.